This week's TribCast is sponsored by Philanthropy Advocates. Texas Philanthropy knows that advancing education is investing in economic opportunity for students, family, and our state. Learn more at edtx.org. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries is committed to health equity, striving to create more fair and just opportunities for all to thrive. Learn more at mhm.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for June 16th, 2023. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor for the Tribune. This week, we're going to talk about Texas Republicans and why they can't seem to get along these days. In the past month, we've had the Attorney General call for the resignation of the House Speaker, the Republican-led House impeaching that Attorney General, the Lieutenant Governor calling a property tax plan supported by the Governor and the state's leading conservative think tank a joke and a fantasy, and accusing the House Speaker of pushing a plan uh, related to property taxes that would boost his own financial interests. This week, uh, Governor Greg Abbott has vetoed eight bills. Seven of those were authored by Republicans. Most have been vetoed because Abbott explicitly stated he's mad at the Republicans for not passing a property tax bill. The House voted unanimously to expel a Republican member of the legislature this uh, last month. In Congress, U.S. Rep. Chip Roy has helped lead a mutiny against the Republican House Speaker. Oh, and I guess maybe we should also bring out up that one of our pot panelists for this show reported last year that Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick tried to recruit Rick Perry to run against Abbott ahead of the 2022 elections. That same story talked about associates of Donald Trump telling people close to Ken Paxton, the Attorney General, and Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller that Patrick had worked to undermine Trump's support for them. So it's a big hot mess in the Republican Party these days. They're winning elections, but fighting with each other. Here to talk about that dynamic today is Mark Davis, a conservative radio host for Dallas's 660 AM The Answer and a frequent interviewer of the state's top Republican officials. Hey, Mark, thanks for joining us. Matthew, pleasure to be here. Thank you. And we've also got Patrick Svitek, our politics reporter, uh, back again. Hey, Patrick. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. All right, so let's talk about impeachment first. On Tuesday, the Senate is expected to vote on its rules for the upcoming impeachment trial. Paxton's attorneys and supporters have waged a public push to get rules favorable to Paxton. And we've seen some GOP uh, parties, county level parties, calling for essentially throwing the charges out against Paxton. Mark, Tony Busby, Paxton's lead attorney, appeared on your show yesterday, Thursday, can you tell us a little bit about the case he made to you on this issue? Sure. Uh, it's interesting because uh, anytime you have an adversarial situation that's about to play out, whether in a courtroom or sometimes in an impeachment, uh, there, there might be some wiggle room, some gray area, some nuance. There is precisely none here. Uh, the House managers, uh, through their uh, celebrity attorneys, uh, Mr. Hardin, Mr. DeGarren, they have said, uh, when, when, when we lay this out for you, you can look at those articles of impeachment, it's 10 times worse. And uh, up against that, Mr. Busby says, not just uh, we're going to go at this case by case or count by count. He says that every single one of them is intellectually vacant, uh, mm -hmm. that Paxton is innocent of absolutely everything, and that he will, uh, and that he will prove it. So now uh, there's going to be an odd and interesting vacuum, because as you mentioned, next week, 
uh, the Senate will offer up some uh, some framework of rules through which this will all happen. But it's a good two months before any of this plays out. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of uh, lobbying in the court of public opinion uh, will, will spring forth. As for Mr. Busby, he is not shy. He not only points to the articles of impeachment as uh, vapid and, uh, and threadbare, uh, he looks at the motivation of this entire thing as a political assassination and seeks to besmirch it at that level before he even opens his mouth in the Senate chamber. Yeah, no one has ever accused Tony Busby of being shy, that is for sure. Uh, Patrick, you um, got your hands on a letter from the House impeachment managers kind of seemed like in response to some of this kind of public uh, posturing by, by Busby. They are doing their own sort of posturing. Can you kind of sum up the case that they are making to the to the Senate leadership? Sure. Um, and it should be said, you know, for maybe folks that have been following this, um, you know, there is a lot of uh, anticipation building um, for these rules because the Constitution and state law uh, really are silent on, on what the rules like what the parameters of the rules have to be. So that gives a lot of power to the Senate to devise um, the rules of procedure for this trial. And so the memo that you just mentioned from the House impeachment managers uh, appeared to be a response to what uh, Busby has been saying uh, on Mark's show and in other media outlets recently. Uh, one of the big things he's been emphasizing is that he would like a rule uh, from the Senate that basically allows the senators to, uh, you know, dismiss these articles, maybe some of them, maybe all of them, but basically before they get to a real trial, you know, he's saying it's similar to what would probably be formerly known as a summary procedure, which is basically taking all the evidence captured up until this point and just having the Senate vote on that before proceeding with any further um, investigation or, or evidence vetting or motions. Um, so that's the main thing that he, is, he seems to be pushing. Um, and he's warning very vocally that if there isn't a mechanism for that, these senators could be in for a pretty painstaking process. You know, he's talked about how they've identified, I think, 66 witnesses. You know, he said there's obviously going to be thousands of pages of documents. This could take up to a year. And so his message um, to the Senate, I think, has been pretty clear in some of these media appearances, which is if you don't, you know, if we have to move to a real trial, we're confident. But you guys better be ready for what an actual real trial looks like on 20 articles of impeachment. And so the memo that you mentioned from the House impeachment managers uh, was sent yesterday, Thursday to the Senate Rules Committee. And it basically tried to rebut uh, Busby and said that, you know, suggested that he's pushing for a quote sham trial and, you know, pointing to the two previous impeachment trials that we've had, you know, back in 1917 and I think in the 1970s the House managers offered up, I think, 17 different rules that they basically said they want in this trial. Um, and those rules include everything from, um, you know, having cameras there, um, having frequently published uh, transcripts. Um, they also, you know, point out that in past impeachment trials, there have been rules related to uh, recusal. Obviously, a lot of folks want to know if Ken Paxton's uh, wife, who's a state senator, Angela Paxton, would recuse herself in a trial. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, posturing going on as these rules are being devised. Yeah, you know, the, the threat of having to be in Austin for a year for a trial, I think, is one that might send shivers yeah. down the spine. <laughs> don't don't underestimate that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Mark, help me kind of weigh the politics of this. I mean, we are definitely seeing um, 
from you know the Paxton segment of the GOP um, a a push to you know make kind of quickly get past this effort and and you know an idea of um, you know really pushing the argument that this is driven by Democrats that this is you know driven by the liberal house and things like that. How much is that push, do you think, weighing on the people who will make these rules and the people who will ultimately, in the Senate, you know, have the future of Paxson's time in office in their hands? As the senators look at this rules uh, framework that they will craft next week, uh, Patrick's mention of the uh, the summary judgment framework is exactly what Busby wants. Uh, it, it, as in a court, and let us say 12 times, as you guys have, have mentioned in prior trib casts that I've been glad to, to work my way through, this is not a court of law. This is a completely political environment. I mean, yes, you still might have witnesses, you still have evidence, you still have a decision to be made, et cetera. Someone presides like a judge, that's Dan Patrick, but it is a purely political environment. And, and within that realm, uh, these senators, maybe the first thing that they'll have to weigh if if they get this is the chance to simply say, you know what, we're throwing this out on its face. Yeah. But what Busby told me was that he would like for a rule to be crafted where the 31 senators, before we even get to the months or <laughs> possibly a, almost a year of, uh, of, of excruciating trial activity in Austin, as a judge would do, lawyers would perhaps file for a summary judgment, which for the uninitiated essentially says, we're asking for a ruling that says this doesn't even meet the bar for going to trial. It is something that deserves to be tossed for lack of merit. There's no promise that that would happen. In fact, it might not be the, the smartest optics in the world if it did. Mm -hmm. Even if there are Republican senators who would say right now, uh, that they probably intend to acquit, uh, if that's even the term, and they do not intend to eject Paxton from office. They have to think long and hard about what it will look like uh, to, to toss this thing out on its ear uh, without even having the trial. The positive, the grassroots would love it. You know, this this they got exactly what it wanted. It wasn't worth the paper it was written on. But to to the mushy middle, to independence, to whatever, they might say, hmm, what did they fear from a trial? So avoid steps taken to avoid the trial are not without risk. Right, right. Patrick, you know, we, we, we started this conversation or I started this conversation with a kind of rundown of the very complicated politics of the Republican Party in Texas right now. Can you kind of set the picture for us of what Kent Paxton's relationship with the Senate has been and is over these last few years. I mean, I know he used to serve. Of course, his wife is a member of that Senate. But what is that dynamic there? And how might that play into this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, as you pointed out, he has some very direct ties to the Senate. Of course, his wife serves there. Um, you know, I think there are probably some other state senators that he's more personally friendly with. Um, so you have to take that into consideration. Um, there were some state senators, a, a couple state senators who got involved in his reelection campaign last year uh, against him. I believe Senator Charles Schwartner from Georgetown endorsed George P. Bush, who was running against Ken Paxton uh, in the primary uh, last year. You had another senator who was a House member at the time, Mays Middleton, who was a top donor to Matt Krause when he ran against Ken Paxton in the primary, and then Louis Gohmert when Matt Krause dropped out and Louis Gohmert ran against um, Paxton in the primary. So some of these guys have, you know, more unique 
personal political history with Paxton. Um, we shouldn't, of course, we shouldn't just assume because they opposed him in a political campaign that they are necessarily inclined to, um, you know, oppose him in a Senate trial. We should certainly sure. give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, but, you know, that's, of course, political history that is worth noting. When it comes to the lieutenant governor who doesn't have a vote in the trial but acts as the judge in the trial, um, the lieutenant governor, you know, ultimately did endorse Paxton for re-election in his primary runoff last year. Uh, you know, there was a little bit of question uh, beforehand how committed Patrick was or how interested Patrick was in seeing Ken Paxton make it through that primary. But Patrick, you know, you mentioned our, our reporting at the time, uh, but Patrick seemed to put that to bed when he formally got behind uh, Paxton in the runoff. And so, um, you know, those are just some of the political relationships that, that you know, may uh, come into play here. Mark, I wonder if what you think about if what's going on with President Trump right now affects this in any way. You know, uh, Trump, of course, spoke out against the idea of impeachment uh, the morning of impeachment in the House. He is, of course, now otherwise occupied, you know, dealing with his own legal issues. And I don't know how closely he'll be paying attention to this trial or this case. And also, I don't know how much what's going on in Florida right now sucks up the kind of oxygen around this. Do you think there is a Trump element to this issue, to this, to this debate over the next few months? People pay attention to the news and they notice things happening. And sometimes there are things that harmonize. There are things that seem to be traveling on parallel tracks yeah. without, without regard to the merit of either of these observations. I can say that the, the largely conservative listenership that I have is of a mind that Trump is being persecuted politically, uh, that even if there are some things he should have done with those stupid documents, that having this rise to the level of this indictment is insane, and it's a politicized witch hunt. Now, there's so there's note number one, the note mm -hmm. that sings in harmony here. For Texas conservatives, they take a look at what's happening to Paxton, and they view a phenomenon that is similar. They take a look at a, a, a Texas House where 60, I believe it was, right, 60 Republicans found a reason to impeach him. And of these 60, how many of them have been spending the previous weeks or months or years decrying the horrible ethics of Ken Paxton? The answer is virtually none of them. And yet all of a sudden, Dave Phelan throws a hissy fit over the $3.5 million settlement, doesn't want to pay it. And now all of a sudden, we get a 48-hour impeachment rush. You can't not notice that. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to buy into it and presume that it's exactly the same phenomenon, one involving Trump, one involving Paxton, but there are certain shared characteristics noticed by many. Yeah. So let's just fly forward in the hypothetical world. Let's say in you know early September, the Senate votes to remove Ken Paxton from office on that you know, Tuesday morning show or whatever, how angry are your listeners at the Senate for doing this? Or are they angry? They, okay, uh, the short answer is they likely will be. There's only one thing that will prevent, uh, you know, uh, flaming torches in the street, metaphorically speaking. Uh -huh. And that is it because, uh, perfectly phrased question, because let's say it is September, 
<laughs> it's kind of funny. But that'll be a real brief trial, won't it? Because I think it's going to start <laughs> on August 20. Please, God, let it be September rather than, you know, July of uh, 24. Yeah. Um, there's only one thing that will quell the kind of righteous indignation that what you described would would uh, would yield. And that is if the trial, which we will all hang on with bated breath, mm -hmm. if the House managers and the attorneys do such a compelling job of uh, painting a picture of corruption, malfeasance, and abuse of office that even the Paxton fan base has a percentage that says, wow, we love Ken, but that was bad. So what what's the likelihood of that happening? I don't know. As, as you guys in past Tribcasts have observed, there's very little in this that hasn't been swirling around in the ether for in, in some cases with the securities fraud stuff since 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, th this, this is all, I mean, I don't want to call all of it old news, but the fact of the matter is that some of the things in the articles of impeachment have worked their way through the Texas court system and yielded nothing. The, the whistleblowers, oh, these whistleblowers who were so up in arms about something, they took their complaints right to the FBI. FBI investigated it, once again, yielded nothing. And, and the voters throughout this entire process have ruled on two occasions that they overwhelmingly want Ken Paxton to be the attorney general. So it's going to have to be a crazy turn of events in that trial uh, to have uh, the, the Paxton fan base say grudgingly that his ejection was deserved. So Patrick, what are you watching for on Tuesday? Uh, well, first of all, I'm just watching to see how these rules are proposed, if it's going to even be a public proceeding. Um, like we reported in our, our story today, I mean, there's just not a lot of, um, not a lot known about this rule committee, rules committee's uh, deliberations. Um, you know, we know the members on the committee. We don't know if they've met. Um, we don't know, you know, what the, the, sh the contours of their conversations have been like. And so I'll be just watching Tuesday to see how we learn about what the proposed rules are. Um, and I should note in, in the resolution that the Senate passed that creates this, this rules process, it just said they have to present the rules on Tuesday to the full Senate. It didn't say they necessarily have to, to vote on them. Um, so I'll just be watching some of the basic things on Tuesday. Uh, like, you know, will we get a public view of the rules? Will they be voted on? Um, because, you know, once they're voted on, that effectively triggers um, the decision by Dan Patrick to pick a trial a start date sometime between then and August 28th. So I'll just be watching the basic things. All right. Let's pause for a moment here from our sponsors. Texas Biomed pioneers and shares scientific breakthroughs that protect our communities. Health starts with science. Health starts at Texas Biomed. Visit txbiomed.org for more. And Texas 2036, building long-term data-driven strategies to secure Texas's prosperity through our bicentennial and beyond. Find out more at texas2036.org. Okay, now let's look at the other thing that's been causing a lot of fighting among the Republicans this week, uh, property taxes. It, Another week has passed without much visible progress on reaching a compromise between the House and the Senate. You know, the two competing proposals, as, as listeners of this show will know, is whether the House or whether the legislature should spend all of the money that they've set aside for property tax uh, reduction on essentially compressing, lowering property tax rates, or whether some of that money should be pulled aside to specifically target homeowners and increase their 
savings from property taxes is a little bit more than than other property owners in the state. The most dramatic action we've seen around this this week is Abbott's vetoes, which I mentioned earlier in the show, where he vetoed, I think, eight bills this week, seven of which by Republicans, signing in his veto note, you know, this bill is not as important as property taxes, and we can reconsider this idea once property taxes are passed. Patrick, what's the strategy here? What's what's Abbott hoping to accomplish with this? Well, big picture that, you know, as we've discussed before, uh, as an almost academic matter, the governor, you know, often finds himself wanting for tools at his disposal to influence the legislative process, right? I mean, uh, you know, it's not a position that has a lot of um, ways of influencing the legislative process formally other than just using the bully pulpit. So he's trying to leverage the one tool, you know, one of the few tools he has at this point, which is the threat of a veto. He can, um, by Sunday, he has to either sign or veto bills, or if he doesn't sign them, they still become law. Um, so he's trying to leverage one of the few, you know, formal tools at his disposal to try to influence the legislative process at this point. He's trying to wield the threat of a veto and the following through of vetoing some bills to try to coax uh, a compromise out of the House and Senate on property taxes. Um, something that I think is politically, you know, going on at the same time here is he, he has seemed in recent days to cool on his allegiance to the House in this standoff. Mm -hmm. We saw the House immediately pass what he wanted in his special session call. He came out that that evening and said, the House did what I wanted. Senate needs to get this to my desk and we can all go home, basically. And in, in recent days, he's been far less firmly on the House's side as has instead been calling for a House-Senate compromise. And is, you know, in, in my view of it, kind of been leaving the House um, out to dry after firmly siding with them early on. And so you know, I think he's he's had some political missteps in this uh, in, the, in probably the past week or so here. Um, and now, you know, we're obviously at the point where he's trying to threaten and take uh, drastic measures by vetoing bills. All right, Mark, I did a temperature check with you on impeachment. Now I'm going to do one on property taxes. What's the what's the feeling of, of the listeners on homestead exemptions, compression, things like that? Is that something that there's a lot of debate over is there is is that something that even the average texan understands the okay uh define average but define <laughs> average uh and that, that that's going to be probably not uh, giving credit especially to the kind listenership that graces me every day uh -huh. paying attention to the issues up to a certain point uh what's the overarching sentiment is how arcane so much of this is. I, I know deep in the weeds, it really does matter. Issues of compression, of what benefits homeowners versus what benefits businesses, the uh, shades of difference between what Patrick and the Senate might want and Abbott and the House might want. But uh, above the din of all of that is a clarion call from just about every listener I have, not all of them Republican, mm -hmm. is guys, pull your heads out and do something. Texas for years has gotten away with this reputation as a low tax state, a tax haven, which in some ways we are, we don't have state income tax, but property taxes are brutal here. They're absolutely punitive. And ultimately, I think most listeners and, and most, you know, average Texans are, are, are very bottom line oriented. I, I don't think that there'll be a lot of people uh, up in arms when one idea prevails over the other, they just would say, for God's sake, give us some form of relief. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like, um, you know, not that I'm having necessarily having these conversations with these Texans every single day, but I got to imagine at this point, the average Texan just frustrated that there's there's no progress. And I feel like to the average, um, maybe Republican leading voter, they're willing to stomach some uh, intra-party sniping on, on social issues and things where there may not be Republican unanimity across the board. But I think it it, it seems like a damaging appearance that Texas Republicans can't uh, find compromise on issues where they're generally united even. Which, which kind of leads to my big picture question that I wanted to ask, Mark, is just what is going on with the, the Republican leaders in Texas right now? Why can they not get along on anything? Okay, this will be by its nature simplistic, uh, but, but, it, but it works as an overall model. Within the Republican Party, you can say there are factions that are what you might call the grassroots, uh, the, the, the staunch conservatives, uh, the Trumpian, Paxtonian, uh, you know, the, that everybody knows what I'm talking about. There's also the, the, the slice of the Republican pie that is a little more establishment, might have liked McCain and Paul Ryan over Trump, might like Dave Thielen uh, over, uh, over anyone of, the, of, of Dan Patrick's Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, Republicans, as a group, we are used to doing ideological battle with the left, with liberals, with Democrats. That's baked into our daily lives. And there is a certain almost comfort zone to that. It's like, well, we're on the right, they're on the left. Let's saddle up. Let's see what we got to do. But within the Republican Party, There is a passion and a sharpness to this that exists for the following reason. The Republican Party, since uh, since 2015, when Trump and Melania came down that escalator, has largely been taken over by a kind of a bold, unapologetic, grassroots populist conservatism, which has proven enormously popular in the country, uh, in in the Republican America, and in Republican Texas. This has driven establishment moderate Republicans absolutely insane. They can't believe that their go along to get along three yards in a cloud of dust, give us 10 years, we'll solve this, no longer uh, finds favor with with the public. So to wrap up my really long answer, uh, what what we have here is a battle for what direction the party uh, is is going to take. And and, and the Paxton battle itself is is completely emblematic of this. Uh, Dade Phelan and Ken Paxton, hold each other in abysmally low regard. And it's mostly because of the dichotomy that I've just mentioned. Ken Paxton represents everything that Speaker Thielen thinks is uh, is, is extreme and unsavory uh, about those Trumpian Republicans. And Dade Phelan represents to Ken Paxton everything that is squishy and moderate and weak. And, and so as that battle takes place, uh, somebody somebody's gonna win, somebody's gonna lose. Uh, not that not that the Republican Party will unanimously reflect either one or the other, but lately the victories have been racked up by the more conservative side of Republican Texas, and I, I don't see that changing um, in the near future. Patrick, do you agree with that? I mean, uh, there is definitely some ideological uh, components to this, and the the House versus Senate fights, you know, date back uh, for for years. And I also got to think that there's some personalities here, right? Like really what you need is someone to just come in and try to take the temperature down and say, hey, look, we're all Republicans. We all like tax cuts. This shouldn't be that hard if we can just be nice to each other for a week. 
no one seems to be doing that right now, Patrick. Yeah, it, I think Mark did a good job of explaining how this fits into the broader Republican ecosystem right now. So maybe I'll address the, the three big personalities at play here and why it's maybe different than past sessions. The, the big three, the governor, the lieutenant governor, the House Speaker, um, you know, it's, it's my, in my belief that the three of them entered this legislative cycle with more individual self-assuredness um, and the feeling of an individual mandate than, than previously. We just came off of a statewide re-election cycle where the two statewide officials in that group, Dan Patrick and, and Greg Abbott, won by probably better than expected margins, I think at least 10 points each. So, you know, each of those statewide officials came into this legislative cycle, you know, fresh off of the feeling of an overwhelming mandate by the voters of Texas. Um, and then you have Dave Phelan in his second session as speaker, really starting, you know, going into this session, starting to hit his stride, I think, um, and having a lot more confidence after his first session. I mean, he was able to get reelected as speaker by, with only a few, dis, you know, a few dissenting votes. Um, we, and then, you know, in addition to that feeling of each of them having such a strong mandate individually, um, we saw them start charting priorities that below the top two or three issues were kind of divergent. Um, you know, obviously they all agreed, all three of us want property tax relief. Sure, all three of us want to secure the border. But you saw Abbott and Patrick and Phelan take ownership individually of priorities that weren't always in alignment with one another. Great example of this, at least going into the session, was Patrick's overwhelming emphasis on the grid, which for the longest time, even Abbott couldn't, you know, come out and say, we still need to you know, reform the grid. Um, you had Phelan start prioritizing, uh, you know, bills that were pretty far off politically from what Abbott and Patrick have been championing over the years. Um, you know, whether it was, you know, some of the, the healthcare related bills, criminal justice reform related bills. And so that's just to say it was kind of a two stage process going into this legislative session where we saw each three of these guys feel more of a mandate than ever before for their agenda from the voters of Texas. Um, and then we saw them chart out priorities that beyond those first two or three issues really started clashing. And so I think that set them up um, on a bit of a collision course this session in a way that we haven't seen before. Yeah, Mark, it's interesting. You know, when I when I came to the Tribune, the fights between the House and Senate were over things like the bathroom bill and, you know, property taxes were, were sailing through. And, and now we're seeing, you know, the more socially conservative things, the the. Um, you know, related to LGBTQ issues and things like that getting through fairly easily, but fighting over the property taxes. It's, it's interesting to see how the shifts have, have, have happened here in these last few years. It, it is. And I think the one thing that can be for somebody that's covered stuff as much as you have and has been on the beat as long as Patrick has, uh, one thing that can always be reliably counted upon is the power of the public will to nudge uh, the, the prevailing results in a certain direction. Yeah. Uh, the, the gender wars, SB 14 and 15, uh, gender stuff in women's sports and uh, stopping the various procedures for minors. Uh, this was something Dan Patrick felt very, very strongly about that Dade Phelan absolutely did not feel strongly about at all. And Governor Abbott wanted to feel exactly as strongly as, uh, as would benefit him politically. 
Uh, <laughs> he told me, and that, that sounds unkind. I don't mean it to be. I was having conversation because I'm very energized by such things. And mm -hmm. I'd have him on the show maybe like a year ago. And he said, listen, I think it just Indy just it drove him crazy that every day DeSantis would do something and get huge applause for it. And everybody would look at him and go, well. Mm -hmm. And he told me one point on one of those occasions, he said, I'm going to do something, Mark. I'm going to do something like it in the coming days. It'll be just the same as a state that bans these procedures. And what it was is some stupid letter from the Department of Family uh, uh, Services, Health and Family Services, that essentially says, we consider this to be child abuse. Well, what a lovely conceptual thing to do. But it was a far cry from actually having a law that says we don't do this. So the governor took a look at the temperature and wisely, uh, I believe, uh, said, uh, this is a bill that I will sign. And he did. All right. Well, we will see how public opinion drives action on impeachment and on um, property taxes in these in these coming weeks. Thank you, Mark. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Pat, for joining us. And thank you to our producer, Justin. We'll talk to you all next week. Join us in Houston June 22nd for the last event in our continuing series dedicated to recapping the 2023 legislative session. Learn more and RSVP at texastribune.org events.